So, um, of all these things, you know, in our lives that we do that matter as we go through our our uh, aging and our premature aging process as we do this practice. In our daily lives, the most important thing is how we meet people. How we meet people and how we relate to people and how we relate to the circumstances we find ourselves, of course. So, um, there are another pair of wings. I talked about a pair of wings the other day on Saturday, which go together. And they are insight or wisdom, understanding, and caring or compassion or loving. The mind and the heart. The, the wisdom aspect and the connecting aspect. In the uh, Vajrayana and the uh, Mahayana traditions, the emphasis is more on the compassion in that heart part. In the Theravada, it's a little more in metta, the kindness itself. It's that splitting hairs. It's about the head and the heart and how they belong together. They aren't separate. They aren't even separate practices but they are reflections of each other. Ajahn Sumedho, I expect most of you know who that is, Ajahn Sumedho, the American monk who lives in England now, has been the Dharma heir of uh, Ajahn Chah, says, love is wisdom's natural radiance. I love that idea of radiating. Radiating love. It's kind of shining forth. And it's a natural expression when there's wisdom. So just think for a moment, who do you know who's particularly wise, who you've had the good fortune to be with or hang out with or know? Is it not true that they are the friendliest of people? That's almost how you would define why they're wise, is because their capacity to be your friend, to have space for you, to care about you, to be empathetic, interested, good listeners, those are wise people. The Dalai Lama actually says, when I meet people, um, I try and be their best friend. I mean, he says it in that way. And as I'm sure many of you have heard him answer, people have said, what exactly is your religion? Can you describe? He said, yes, I can describe my religion. It's compassion. So I want to talk about the heart part of our practice today, more the meta aspect of it. Nazargadat, Sri Nazargadat, from the last century in India says, when I see with love, I am everything. When I see with wisdom, I am nothing. Between these two, my life flows. Both are so. He also says, the mind makes the abyss, the heart crosses it. Buddha says, I teach one thing and one thing only, the sure heart's release. Or another different quote, the unshakable deliverance of the heart. That softening, relaxing, opening, which is the feeling of love. When we love, when we're in a state of loving, friendliness, trust, safety, calm, soft, tender, loveliness. Wisdom is liberation through clear seeing, through understanding, truth revealing itself, seeing anatta, seeing anicca, seeing the 
impersonalness, seeing the conditions of things, seeing the absolute reality of how things are. Compassion is the personal aspect. It's attention in our relative world, our physical, day-to-day, connected world. The relative reality. So there are like these two realities the Buddha taught. There's our normal, conventional, conceptual way of going about I, like, you, duality, subject, object. And then there's the Dharma reality, the ultimate reality of there is no difference between I and you. It's ridiculous when the right hand doesn't love or hate the left hand. It simply is connected. There isn't the separation. Both those realities are true. And metta, the heart aspect, is where we express ourselves in the duality of our day-to-day lives with other people. And with ourselves, of course. The word in the Pali language for mind is citta. I know you all know this. It means heart and mind. It doesn't just mean mind. For us in the West, we do tend to separate these two things out and think of the intellectual and rational as being separate from the emotional and the relational aspect of ourselves. But they're actually not really different. Just different aspects. So, there are um, this metta or loving kindness. There's different ways that, that we can explore this. Metta is a natural expression of understanding. The more we understand, the, the more we have insights and uh, can see the truth clearly, the more metta is radiating. It just, it, it's a natural thing. It just happens as we grow. When generally older people are friendlier than the youth. You know, don't hook around scowling with big opinions more and so on. Then there is um, metta as, which is what I'd call the result of practice. The, you know, the natural result. It's like it just happens more and more without having to do anything about it. Metta also can be seen as a flavor or attitude with which we do our insight practice. How we apply ourselves and the way we hold our attention needs to be one of kindness. It isn't like we do this insight practice, we're rigorous and we make sure we're really clear and we really tell the truth and all the rest of it with all this gumption and effort and then separately, oh yes, and we remember now we're going to do some kindness. It needs to be imbued in it. You can't expect a natural radiance of one thing to occur if it isn't incorporated. Actually, it does happen even if you don't mean it to. But we can mean it to. And we can find that metta is, is like pervades our very attitude to practice. So when I give instructions, for instance, at the beginning of a practice period, I talk about caring. Like we do what we do because we're interested. But we're interested because we actually care about our lives. Not to meet it with anything other than um, the heart that wants freedom. The heart that wants to be released as the Buddha described so it's a a flavor or an attitude of our practice it's a result of our practice it's also a practice itself so it can be practiced specifically as a form of practice and there are different ways that that can happen so one of the ways for instance is what I'm going to be teaching next week at Spirit Rock people are going to go there for a week of intensive nothing but practicing metta 
from the morning they moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep they will be wishing well-being to the world pretty nice to think there's going to be a hundred people generating a bunch of loving kindness all day long day after day but that 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 can happen one can go and do intensive metta as a practice I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute Um, metta can be um, not that these are all different from each other what I'm describing but just to clarify um, metta can be um, practiced when there are when there's trouble this is the commonest thing and I commonly give this advice to people for instance when you find yourself struggling when something's heavy you know when there's grief when there's loss when there's upset in some kind one of the most helpful practices is to turn to the heart and to bring some kindness some sympathy for yourself if it's your own grief or your own anger or your frustration some kindness to the person if somebody else is having a difficult time or you're in some kind of struggle with somebody else so to bring deliberately intended well-wishing in the midst of trouble is incredibly useful Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it as soothing it's a soothing practice and I love this idea and I think often when we're upset when there's some kind of trouble happening whatever kind of trouble which we all encounter we all remember the eight vicissitudes then um, think of the trouble as a little kid who's crying and what happens when you have a little kid who's crying if you can most of the time you'd pick that kid up and you'd, you'd reassure it you'd give it some comfort there there it's okay yes that's a big owie uh, that's that's meta meta to the trouble is the crying child it could be you the crying one and meta is how you hold it and how you relate to it in a friendly way you don't get mad at the kid for crying I mean you do if they're really driving you crazy and they're putting it on and you haven't got enough patience but ideally <laughs> you're kind of like pleasant and reassuring and forgiving and encouraging and supportive and so on that's all meta another thing about the practice of when it's done as a um, specific intentional spending your hours or days practicing or even if it's your whole sitting every day or whatever it would be um, the actual act of paying attention to wishing well is a concentration practice meaning that your attention is gathered and collected in just this one thing that you keep doing and keep doing and keep doing and it really serves to bring the mind together you can't be off fretting and blaming and judging and shopping when you're occupying yourself with saying phrases it's a very useful some people find it actually the, the easiest way for them to practice some kind of concentration so we can really develop a powerful stability of mind by doing matters of formal practice one of the things about doing it is in the, the way the Buddha taught it is that um, when we uh, are encountering either within ourselves or coming at ourselves any kind of ill will it's an antidote to that ill will is to give some kindness to respond with some understanding did I tell you guys a little story of Carol's mother I'm always telling this story because it exemplifies so many things did you hear me talk about Carol's mother so there's this friend of mine Carol and um, she's Irish and one of 13 children and her little old 
Irish mother lives in Ireland and comes to visit her in Vancouver every so often. She is quite small, Carol. Her mother is tiny and old. Little old lady. And her little old lady mother needed to go to the bank one day. So she went to the bank with Carol. And uh, it was her turn to go up to the teller. And Carol was standing back, some steps back. And she saw the teller's face, which she couldn't see. She couldn't see the back of her mother. And the teller appeared to be being really quite rude to her mother. And so she, she was getting really quite defensive and uptight and so she couldn't stand it after some minutes so she walked up to beside her mother to tell the teller to stop it just in time to hear her mother say have you ever thought of doing different kind of work dear not <laughs> <laughs> a great story that's a good illustration of equanimity of not taking things personally of being in the other person's shoes that's kindness. She was able to understand this woman was stressed out, not in a perfect job for herself. It's a very lovely example of, there's a nice wise person, this tiny little old lady. So an antidote to her ill will, it didn't go anywhere. When she was being angry, it doesn't go anywhere. It puts the fire out when you don't respond in kind. Right? It just, that was the end of that unpleasantness. Very good antidote. When um, we practice, whether we call it practice or we just pay attention to exhibit, express compassion when there's suffering, it's an antidote of harmfulness. It's very similar when there's negativity, then it's antidoted by some sympathy, which is also what she was exhibiting. She had some sympathy for this woman who was getting all highly uptight. And so she was able to say that to her. Um, when there is the practice of mudita, or the third of these four Brahma-viharas, which I'll, I, sh- I shouldn't just assume you know what I mean by saying that, there are four of these practices. Kindness, or loving-kindness, number one. Simple loving, simply being kind. Compassion, being kind and loving when there's suffering. Having some empathy for somebody's struggle. That's the second one. The third one is having empathy and being happy when someone's having a success. And someone's fine. Mudita, altruistic or empathetic joy, it's called. And the fourth one is equanimity, which means um, being steady and fine and not upset, whether it's wonderful or awful or whatever. It's holding a steadiness of heart, regardless of what's happening. So those are the four. I often think of them and teach of them as the first one is the mother of the newborn. I can't help but think of this good illustration. The simplest love. The second one is the child is a little kid who keeps getting into scrapes and falling over and having paddies, as they call it in Ireland, getting upset over something. So compassion for that situation, like I just described. The third is the teenager who comes home with some kind of medal or honor or has won a race or achievement, pride, and you're delighted with them. It's like, yes, far out. That sympathetic joy. And the fourth one is they've grown up and they've moved out and now they're living with somebody you don't like particularly and they're doing a job that you can't really relate to and then they they get very successful or whatever and you love them anyway, whether or not what they're doing is what you want, it's their life. There's a kind of spaciousness, not such involved and you don't change how you love regardless of what the circumstances may be. So those are handy illustrations to remember these four, I think. The antidote in uh, the the third one, which is the empathetic joy, happiness with someone else's happiness, um, what it antidotes is being discontent, 
when we're not okay, then we don't like it when someone else is okay. But if we can be happy for them, it can actually help us feel okay. And uh, the other, the fourth one, equanimity, it antidotes partiality. Instead of like, you know, having an opinion, oh, I can't stand this, why did you go and marry her, for goodness sake? It's like, it's the antidote to that. It's like, okay, well, it's your life, you know, it's your happiness. And even if I think you won't be so happy, then I had to go through that. I have a son who's 29, and for four years he was with a girlfriend who I was like, and then they split up recently, and I was like, (laughs) I was surprisingly calm when they split up. But I, I definitely was holding my tongue for the four years, I tell you. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> the Buddha had some specific things I want to say about this. He said, in talking about uh, practicing this stuff, he said, this is what a noble disciple should do. Dwell, hang out, just live this way, pervading, I love that word, it's rather like radiating, one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness, vast, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will, above and below, across and everywhere, and to all as to oneself. And the one quarter meaning each of the directions. A lot of this old earth-based type religion, north, south, east, west, in all directions, above and below, radiating kindness over the entire world. This is how one, how a wise one is and how we can learn to be. Immeasurable states. When we think about it, when you don't love, when we're in some kind of a struggle, we, we feel small, We are stuck in our small ego place, our little self-reference point of view. When there's love, it's expansive in comparison. We are small self, we're not even aware of ourselves for a moment when there's love. And so, if we can expand that as far as we can imagine, that's true love, the the true depth of spiritual love that all the spiritual teachers talk about. Um, a couple of things I wanted to read that the Buddha said, which is really, I thought, really interesting. In, from the days of the Buddha, um, I don't know if any, any of you have been to India. I went to India once when I was a young woman, hippie, off to the ashram. I was there for like six weeks or three months or some period of time. And um, I didn't do a lot of touring around. How did any touring around? A little bit. I went to the Taj Mahal, went to Agra, went to Delhi. But mostly I was up in the Punjab at this, in this very nice beautiful actually ashram for meditating most of the time um, but I you know I did travel up and down in a train and I did travel a little in a car and did see a little bit of people in India and the thing that struck me one of the number of things that struck me but this struck me the most and it stayed with me all these many years was the contentment of people in apparently abject circumstances so for instance people living on slag heaps garbage heaps picking through garbage for eking out some pathetic livelihood with such serenity because of it seemed to me and this is what I think anyway the ability to have such a broad perspective to think well if I keep my nose down and my eyes down don't cause trouble and live a decent life I just might get reborn in the life of a servant wouldn't that be great 
we don't actually live with anything like that equanimity. We do not have anything like that breadth of patience and, and perspective. In the days of the Buddha and the land of the Buddha and those countries still to this day, of course, there is a lot of the perspective of rebirth and one's future life and lives and held in a much broader perspective than we tend to. We're way more me and now, of course, you know, in the West and we're so speedy and, and you know, immediate results and all the rest of it. How quickly can I get enlightened and what's the fastest way to, what's the shortest, most immediate, whatever it may be, way to eat a meal. Um, Anyway, the, so a lot of focus was on rebirth, and the Buddha teaches a lot about this. Of course, we don't know if there is such a thing, and you know, who's to say, and I'm not going to say that there is or there isn't, or encourage you to believe anything, but in that context, um, a lot of the practice, particularly in the countries who hold this perspective, is if we practice meritorious deeds, if we behave in virtuous, careful ways, we will actually be, have a good rebirth. This is a lot of the psychology of those lands. And so some of the things that one uh, is encouraged to do in one's spiritual life, which includes Buddhism, that's meritorious, would include things like um, not killing, not stealing, the precepts as we know them, you know, not having sexual relationship with somebody who's not really available for them, somebody else's woman or somebody still not, who's left home yet or whatever, um, speaking truthfully, speaking kindly, speaking appropriately, not speaking unnecessarily and trivially and gossiping and not dividing people, etc. Um, mental states that aren't greedy or covetous or wishing harm upon another and so on and so forth. Um, these are righteous conduct or meritorious behaviors. Also, giving, generosity, living with this, all this kind of sila and more, and training the mind. All these things are considered meritorious and in that context will help you be reborn in the realms of the Brahma, Brahma realms, happy rebirths. The Buddha says, whatever grounds there are for making merit, in other words, whatever you may be doing in the way of being generous and being really good with your speech and all the rest of that, none of, if you did all of this, lived your life really, really well, it won't equal one sixteenth part of the liberation that comes from practicing loving kindness. Not one sixteenth. That's a pretty high value on loving kindness, don't you think? In fact, I'll do a little read here. Bear with me for a moment while I read this. As great as the alms offerings that, the, that a Brahmin Valama, this is about a Brahmin called Valama, gave, it would be even more fruitful if one would feed a single person possessed of right view. As great as Brahmin Valama's alms offering were, and though one would feed a hundred persons possessed of right view, it would be even more fruitful if one would feed a single once returner somebody whose spiritual development is to the point that they're closer to being enlightened. As great as Brahmin Valama's offerings were, and though one would feed a hundred once returners, it would be even more fruitful if one would feed a single non-returner, somebody who's about to become an arahant. As great as Brahmin Valama's offerings were, and though one would feed a hundred non-returners, even more fruitful if one would feed a single arahant. 
as great as Brahmin of Allah's alms offerings were. Though one would feed a hundred arahants, it would be even more fruitful if one would feed a single Pachika Buddha, awakened one. As great as the Brahmin of Allah's offering was, and although one would feed a hundred Pachika Buddhas, it would be even more fruitful if one would feed a single perfectly enlightened Buddha. A Pachika Buddha is somebody about to be a Buddha. It would be even more fruitful if one would feed the Sangha of monks headed by a Buddha and build a monastery for the sake of the Sangha. It would be even more fruitful with a trusting mind if one would go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha and undertake the precepts, abstaining from harming, destroying life, taking what's not given, sexual misconduct, false speech and the use of intoxicants. As great as all this might be, it would be even more fruitful if one would develop a mind of loving kindness, even for the time it takes to pull a cow's udder. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. And then at the very end of all of this, and as great as all this might be, it would be even more fruitful still if one would develop the perception of impermanence for just the time it takes to snap your fingers. So however wonderful and great loving-kindness is, it alone won't free you. We need to see the deep truth of change as well. But that, that makes it pretty clear about the value of loving-kindness, I would say. One of the useful <coughs> ways that um, loving-kindness is taught, I find this extremely appropriate for us, seeing as how we're not enlightened, or only have glimpses and moments of being enlightened, and then we forget, um, is the teachings on the near enemies. And I'm sure you know them, but I'm going to remind you of them because most of the time we are not being loving and kind and compassionate and sympathetically joyful and equanimous. We may not be doing the opposite. We may not be being cruel. We may not be, you know, pitying people. We may not be resenting that they're, they've just won a million dollars. We may not be very partial, the opposites. But we're probably living in the territory of the near enemy rather than the far. The far enemy is the opposite of those things. But there's a large range from the opposite to the perfection of those heavenly states where we hang out, which are the near enemies, masquerading as being loving, but not completely. So it's where the ego still is happily, and maybe discreetly, whisperingly hanging out. So the near enemy, not the perfection of loving kindness, the near enemy of love, loving kindness, the first one, is usually got attachment in it, or some kind of desire. You love the thing or the person, and you want that. <laughs> and you want it back or more of it or you want to have conditions or you want to own it or be its exclusive one or something. There's some you in there with it. Attachment, attached love. The purest love is not attached love. It's love whatever happens, whoever, wherever, however. Compassion, the second one, karuna. The near enemy of karuna is pity. So you're with somebody or a situation where there's suffering the tendency for us isn't to be totally loving, oh, this is so difficult and I love you so much. It's like, oh my God, you poor thing. Oh, this is awful. I hope I don't catch it. <laughs> or something. Or, you know, even if, or some kind of fear of it or some kind of, we've got to fix this. You've got to hurry up and get to the doctor and get rid of this thing. 
is some kind of fear of it or resistance to the problem. The pure karuna doesn't have any resistance, any fear, any, any distancing, any trying to get away from. It's simply being completely with it, totally open to it fully and open to the person, oneself or the other person or whatever, without that needing to do something like get away or change things. Pity. The near enemy of um, empathetic joy is actually, interestingly enough, Interestingly enough, it's much easier to do the karuna than it is to do the sympathetic joy. We are naturally pulled forward when there's suffering. We tend to, oh my dear, somebody's just fallen down, you know, to lend a hand. Somebody's having a great time. We aren't usually that interested. We're usually, the, the, uh, the classic um, near enemy is envy. Like when somebody's having a great success, we don't tend to... We might want to be their good friends so we get some spillover effects and some gifts maybe or some hand-me-downs or something or be popular too or something. But a lot of it is like, well, what about me? You know, like, oh, there's a kind of like, oh, God. <laughs> there's also, um, uh, there are two quite well-known ones, but you, I'm sure you might think of many others that we all exhibit when somebody's having a wonderful time. Jealousy, envy, um, is exuberance quite interesting like we can get off on the thrill and then get all carried away with the excitement of it and forget to love the person you sort of get off on the whatever it is the success thing get all kind of like silly it's quite interesting but look at it and watch for yourself how how is your heart when you're around somebody who's just having some success you know some great honoring there's often little twinges of something in there the near enemy of the fourth one equanimity is, and this was very often confused, and we, on many, many people's questions, you'll find yourself questioning this, the, uh, what we think of as equanimity, but it isn't really, is indifference. So indifference is like, oh, well, whatever, I don't care anyway, you're grown up now. But that's a kind of dismissing, it's a not caring, it's a closing off and detaching. It doesn't mean detaching, it means not being attached to having to have it be a certain way, but it... It's not the same thing as detached. Indifferent is, is putting away from, cutting off from. And, and many people will ask questions about, well, you know, what happens then when I'm with a difficult situation or when I see some wrong happening or when, you know, there's political act, action going on that I want to resist or there's violence or meanness. Does Buddhism mean I just kind of become a doormat to this stuff? No, 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 that's indifference. It's a completely different thing than being equanimous. We might well have to say no to something. Very well. We do. A lot. But we don't have to shut our hearts and just say, oh, I just, you know, can't be bothered with you idiots. You know, it's, it's more still have the heart connection in spite of the difficulty. For example, the Dalai Lama says, my friend's the enemy. While talking about the Chinese when he's heard of some other recent atrocity and some, that he's come with some terrible tales of you know, torture or imprisonment or whatever it would be. Great, great compassion, but not putting out of his heart the people who are actually causing all this bad karma for themselves. Still caring. So those are the four near enemies. And they're very useful because you'll probably find you've got more near enemies going on than you have the pure states of loving, compassion, etc. So just watch for them because they're very useful.
um, for the formal practice, which I won't go into a lot because we're not doing it here, but um, some people do this when they do their sitting practice, that's what they do. Uh, some people do this exclusively. I've known people who do nothing but this practice for months or years. When they're doing their sitting, you know, any time, and when they go on retreat, that's the practice that they do. And um, it's very powerful and very amazing practice and really does soften and, and tenderize the heart. I did a month of meta practice one time, intensive, you know, early morning, late at night. And uh, at the end of the period of practice, I did a just a two or three days of Vipassana. It was a most amazing thing. I had heard this teaching, but I had never experienced it this way. It was a Chogun Trumpa who said this teaching. I experienced, if I had a thought, which I wasn't having a lot of thoughts other than these wishes of well-being, as I was just generating these, you know, non-stop all the time. But if I would have a thought, at the end particularly, that wasn't a loving thought, like, i.e., any old typical thought, it was like um, being some kind of a... I imagined a little stiletto knife going into my heart. The description Chogram Trumpa gave is that your heart is so tender that it hurts as if um, a mosquito which is landed on your heart, like it's like raw. It's so tender. That was my experience. It was unbelievable. So if I had some thought about my mother, you know, I'd be in tears because often my thoughts about my mother weren't that <laughs> great. <laughs> so uh, very, uh, it's an amazing experience. Anyway, um, whether one does it intensively or whether one does it intensively for a period of sitting or whether one does it as the beginning of one sitting. Some people sit and they just generate some kindness, just some reflection for a few minutes. What, why, why am I doing this? What do I care about? I care about my life, my quality of my life, the state of my heart, the way I relate, how I'm going to actually be today when I'm with my people. Sometimes there'll be somebody you know who's having a hard time and some people will take five or ten minutes. I'll often do this. If there's somebody I know who's sick or who's having some kind of a struggle right now, I'll spend a few minutes holding them in my heart, sending them well wishes. Some people end their period of practice with doing some sharing of their, they've done this practice so that their heart can be more tender and now they'll just send some wishes to the world, to particular people or general people or the world or their neighbors or whatever it would be, their leaders whoever they think could do with it. So there's many different ways to actually incorporate this. And some people just wait until the moment happens when there's a struggle and then they just generate some kindness right there and just use it as an antidote, as a soother, when there's soothing required. And then forget about it. And some people never do it. And the thing to realize, if we do this practice in any kind of deliberate way, sending formal wishes to whomever it is, oftentimes, Oftentimes, the opposite comes up into our minds. So we, we can blame the practice for not working or blame ourselves for not being able to do it or it's too hokey or something. Just know it's another purification the way Vipassana is. And when we start looking at ourselves in Vipassana, we start seeing all kinds of junk. That's actually how it works. You can't actually clear your messy attic without going up there, turning on the light and seeing the mess. And it's the same thing with this. And so in attempting to be kind, we often will be seeing well, how we're not, how actually all these near enemies are hanging out here. And so have some kindness for that, for heaven's sake. Don't give up on it or think, you know, just know that some of the times we do feel so loving and so compassionate and other times we don't. And that's what it's like having a human heart. And at times it's open and at times it's shrinking or guarded or frustrated or something, needy. 
And that's normal too. So meet that with kindness, whatever is happening in your heart or in the world or in another's heart. Don't not do the practice because of that. Because if you can spend some time sending some wishes, however ho-hum it may feel or boring or hollow or the opposite it may feel, there is some value to saying some kindness. The power of thought is unbelievable. And I just don't just remind you how people we know, documented, recover from illness much more rapidly when their name is being prayed for in some prayer group that they don't even know exists. Documented benefit from wishing well. There are unbelievable tons of stories of the power of a kind heart. I could go on talking about this for another hour and time's passing, so I won't give you a bunch of quotes. I'll give you some, but I, I won't tell you too many stories of the benefit of, of, uh, of loving. Here's a couple of quotes. Rumi, the poet Rumi. He was born in 1207 and he lived until 1273. He says, when someone is counting gold for you, don't look at your hands, don't look at the gold, look at the giver. Isn't that a lovely thing? The same thing he says, whenever some kindness comes to you, turn that way toward the source of the kindness. It's a beautiful way we can practice. We sometimes dismiss or we're embarrassed or we pass it off. Can we actually face that when there's something coming our way? Thomas Merton, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether they are worthy or not. I don't know who said this. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Ramana Maharshi, this is sweet. If the mind is happy, not only the body, but the whole world will be happy, radiating. So one must find out how to become happy oneself. Wanting to, transform the wo- wanting to transform the world without discovering one's true self is like trying to cover the whole world with leather to avoid the pain of walking on stones and thorns. It's much simpler to wear shoes. Okay, I'll read this last one. I asked God to take away my habit. God said, no, it's not for me to take away habits, but for you to give it up. I asked God to make my handicapped child whole. God said, no, his spirit is whole. His body is only temporary. I asked God to grant me patience. God said, no, patience is a byproduct of tribulations. It isn't granted, it is learned. I asked God to give me happiness. God said, no, I give you blessings. Happiness is up to you. I asked God to spare me pain. God said, no, suffering draws you apart from worldly cares and brings you closer to me. I asked God to make my spirit grow. God said, no, you must grow your own. But I will prune you to make you fruitful. (laughs) I asked God for all things that I might enjoy life. God said, no, I will give you life so that you may enjoy all things. I asked God to help me love others as much as he loves me. God said, ah, finally you have the idea. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I guess just to end with saying, 
Can you be your own best friend? Can you be friendly with yourself as you go through your life and encounter all of your wrinkles and warts and things that happen and where you fail and where your heart isn't loving? Can we meet every moment of our experience with some friendliness, some patience, some kindness, some forgiveness, some allowance? doesn't mean not bothering, but it means always holding ourselves with some kindness. If you could listen to the way you speak to yourself, you know, if we put the tape up of somebody's commentary to themselves, would it be friendly? Do you treat yourself like you treat other people? This is where our constant practice is, you know, like, oh God, I wish I'd never done that. How much do we, and in this culture, just like totally drive ourselves, beat up with ourselves, get so frustrated? Yes, do it with other people, but if we don't do that with ourselves, we won't do it with other people. So, may we all be our own best friends. Thank you.